Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has over 10 years of law enforcement analysis experience with 17 years of law enforcement experience overall. She has gone from records clerk, crime prevention specialist, to crime analyst, to crime analyst supervisor at Fayetteville Police Department in Virginia. She now works at Amtrak as a manager in the Safety and Security Analytics Division. She's here to talk about, among other things, the progression from the public sector to the private sector. Please welcome Rachel Sungaleski. Rachel, how are we doing? Doing great, Jason. Thank you for having me. Did I do okay on that name? Yes. <laughs> yes, right. you did. It's funny. You work up to it. You get it right in your head, and then it's like showtime, and you're like, I paused there. I could feel myself pausing there, and I was like, oh, Jason, you had it. You should have just naturally said it, and then it would have been fine, but I did feel right. myself pause. So. <laughs> All right. Well, how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Oh, Wow. So I discovered law enforcement analysis, really, it was probably in the 2010-2011 timeframe when I was working as a crime prevention specialist there at the Fayetteville Police Department. The reason I discovered the profession was because in my job as as a crime prevention specialist, we were in a role where we were community liaison. So what that meant is you know, we use data, crime statistics, hotspot maps, things like that that were produced by the crime analysis unit to facilitate community conversations. So we, we hosted meetings with our community watch groups, things like that. And those stats and those those maps, all that information would come from our crime analysts. So naturally, I formed a relationship with our crime analyst unit. And then a position opened up in 2012. And again, having a good relationship in, in, with our crime analysis unit, I was encouraged to apply for that new position. And that's how I really kind of got my foot in the door with it. Yeah, the progression is fascinating with your career. Even going back to being a records clerk, how did you discover being a res- records clerk? So I came into the field really at 19. That's I joined the Federal Police Department at 19 years old. Wow. Um, you know, just getting my getting my professional career off the ground. You know, figuring out what you want to be when you grow up, type of thing. And I was actually getting ready to be a brand new mom. And so, you, you know, you're doing all this where you're balancing life in general. And Fayetteville Police Department had a position open up. They said, you know what, this is a great entry-level job for me as a, as a young woman trying to establish herself in the world. And I applied and had an interview, <laughs> as you can imagine, very young, naive, inexperienced person. And, and, and I surprisingly knocked it out of the park. So spent about four and a half years in records. And and I'll tell you, Jason, that right there has been a foundation for success for me in law enforcement analysis. And the reason I say that is because it gave me such an intimate understanding of the law enforcement records that I would one day work with in a Mm -hmm. different capacity. I got to see firsthand police reports and how all of the data was entered, the fields, how information was collected, data integrity issues, all of these things I got to see firsthand. 
And I got to experience, you know, collecting that information from the public and taking those police reports. I also got exposure to DCI and running NCIC queries, things like that. So my time in records really was a very, very good foundation for me as I eventually moved into the analysis profession. Okay. So when you're taking reports from civilians, these are obviously non-911 calls type events that they're reporting, like their their car got broken into, for instance. Correct. Exactly. It's non-emergency items, so like fraud reports or delayed reporting for different staff, something where an officer's response is not going to be needed for things like evidence collection or any type of actual emergency response. Anytime that, you know, maybe that came to us and we realized there was a need for truly an officer to respond, we would defer it back to maybe dispatch. But we would take public walk-in, again, theft reports even delayed breaking and entering of vehicles, you know, where the, everything of evidentiary value has, has gone out the door and, you know, just really helping them with the police report for whatever their needs are at that time. So, yeah, it was being able to sit down, take reports like that. We took missing person, runaway juvenile type report, things that needed to go again into NCIC and, and, and items like that. So not only are you taking the reports, are you also doing the data entry as well? Exactly. Lots of data entry, entering not just police reports, but traffic citations, warning tickets, arrest rec, field contact, field interview cards, all of those things. I got to enter all of the data and see how it actually got input into the system. And again, going a few years into the future, I had a very good understanding of the system. Our records management system CAD, all of that. So it kind of helped me learn the database in a different way. Oh, hmm. When you think of back about this time, you said you did this roughly four years. Is there a story or is there something that comes to mind when you think back about this time? <laughs> well, I started on the night shift, working 12-hour weekend night shifts, and <laughs> then I ended <laughs> up eventually going to 12-hour day shifts and all that. I like the I like the 12-hour weekends because I got my I got my my weeks free, right? And again, mm -hmm. remember I said I was a new mom, so yeah. me and my son got to spend more quality time together. But it's just what I remember back then. It was always interesting, always something new. Usually at nighttime, you're you're fielding a lot of calls from folks that may be emotionally disturbed persons type mm -hmm. situations, or those may be a little bit of a with mental health issues and you end up just in conversation with people. I've had plenty of conversations where you just you just sit there at three o'clock in the morning and maybe just listen to somebody talk. And that's all they want. And sometimes I remember there was one there's one lady she used to call her religiously three o'clock on the dot and she just wanted to say her piece and then she would hang up. And it was <laughs> it was no interruption to my day, but she felt heard and, and all was well, right? Yeah. So it's just a different experience with my community there and again when every time her address popped up I kind of knew what was going on there right yeah. as calls for service come in different things like that you, you you start to know the story with your community yeah all right so let's move on to now then to the crime prevention specialist because this is another stepping stone I mean you you have two really interesting jobs prior to becoming an analyst I feel because as you've already mentioned that it's just those were the base of a, a good platform to leap from. And so when you get into the crime prevention specialist position, what what types of 
activities are you doing? So I'll tell you, when I originally applied for crime prevention, again, you know, I'm I, I'm a type of person where I, I try to be all that I can be in a position, learn everything I can, and then I'm ready to progress, right? And so I had a, a great time in records. I learned a great deal, worked with some fabulous colleagues there, but I was ready for, for growth. And so I applied mm-hmm. for crime prevention and I was under the impression that I, I might be doing the cool stuff like working with McGruff and, and doing <laughs> the type crime of, you know, everybody has that notion where they're like McGruff the crime dog. It was just a kind of a running joke. And I remember saying that in my interview that I was excited about <laughs> McGruff. When do I meet him? When do I get to take McGruff out, right? And so that was, that I was, I remembered again, I'm, you know, maybe in my early 20s by this time. And, you know, this, the naiveness of, of all that was, was, was really comical because I remember as a child seeing Fayetteville Police Department out at the mall with McGruff, right? <laughs> I, I, and this is what stuck out in my mind. So Ed's are telling me, well, we actually don't do McGruff anymore. I was like, really? <laughs> I'm <laughs> out. Don't? I'm done. So I, was, I was like, well, so tell me more about what it is that, you know, or what are the core focuses? And what I, what I quickly learned it, it, with crime prevention is you were there to be a department representation and community liaison. The city of Fayetteville had, uh, at the time, 165 community watch groups. And for a city of just under 209,000 residents at the time, that's a lot of community watch groups. Mm -hmm. And so community partner, I learned a great deal in that position about community partnerships and bringing the community to the table, educating them on what was occurring in their community, realizing what their perception was, And when I say perception, I mean perception of criminal activity within their neighborhoods or surrounding areas, what was important to them, you know, and then being able to to share back, right? This is kind of what I was talking about earlier with the statistics portion. You know, I would come in and share their calls for service information. We would come in and share the highlights of, you know, criminal activity that had occurred for situational awareness. And then what we would do is encourage reporting? Could we answer questions? The whole goal behind it was keeping the community empowered with information so that they would, again, view this as a partnership because there is absolutely no way, we know this in the law enforcement profession, there's absolutely no way that the police can handle all of these issues alone. It must be a partnership from from all facets. So, you know, with, with crime prevention, it really exposed me to that and it really enhanced my public speaking skills. That's where I really got the bulk of my experience with public speaking because I was doing multiple presentations a week. And so it was, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. We, we didn't just work with community watch groups. We worked with our, our religious community, our faith-based community rather. We worked with businesses. We did presentation to, to schools on safety we conducted security assessment. I, I became certified back in, I think, 2011 as a crime prevention through environmental design specialist. So Stepted, that's where I got yes. introduced to Stepted. Yeah. Yes. And it was it was great. So I spent three and a half years as a crime prevention specialist, and it was it was very very rewarding. So then, how did the groups get assigned to you? 
So it depends, right? So for Community Watch, there were six of us citywide. And what we would do is we would break up, you know, you have your police districts and you have sectors and zones and the various boundaries, right? We would break the areas of responsibility up into zones. So I had very specific police zones. And so all the groups within those zones would get assigned to me. Now, of course, we backed each other up. If, if someone was going to be out, we, we could cover another specialist area and such. But really, uh, the way that they were assigned was geographically. Man, so you, you, I could just imagine some of the characters that you must have met during this. And what I mean by that is there's just some people that really get involved with some of these crime statistics. And we had some of them in Cincinnati Police Department when I was there. And I was like, I cannot believe how much analysis you're doing as a civilian for your neighborhood. I was pretty impressed with the data that they would get and what they would do with the data and the questions that they would ask. I mean, it was way more sophisticated than what I ever imagined it would be. And Jason, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. So, uh, you know, another tidbit about the city of Fayetteville, the city of Fayetteville is also home to Fort Bragg, very big military community, which means we also had a lot of, you know, military analysts or people that worked a lot with data and they would, they would consume <laughs> the information in, in various ways and sometimes put their own interpretation on it and other times it ask very detailed questions. And so, you know, sometimes that does catch you off guard. You're like, wow, I didn't, you know, didn't realize <laughs> we're all in that way, but now I'm, I'm, I'm not only impressed, but intrigued and we'll see where this goes. Right. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it does sound like part of the mission there was, and as you mentioned, reporting, getting the citizens to be comfortable with reporting on information. Were you able to track that or did it see improvement over time with all these presentations that you were given that there was either more calls for service or people felt more comfortable with calling the police when they needed to? So, yes. We did. And that was the thing is it depended on the community, right? What we were able to see was, again, it really depended on where the group was located, the, you know, their involvement with the group. What we noticed is that those that they made, you didn't have to have the largest group to have the most involvement. Some of the the biggest levels of involvement were those that were just very intimate, but were consistent. So those groups meeting monthly, coming in and having conversation and, and being willing to have that conversation. It didn't mean we always had to come to the table and agree because that often, you know, that, that, that didn't happen all the time. We would come to the table and talk about the problems and potential solutions. And so a part of the process in crime prevention is, number one, educating people on the process. This is how it works, Right. So when you observe this, what should you do? Letting people know that you should report suspicious activity and not ignore it because you think it's really not an emergency. Changing the mindset of people to let them know it was okay to call 911 when, when something was more just on the suspicious range versus reaching the level of actual crime in progress and or emergency. That was definitely a mindset change that people, they didn't realize that that was okay. And it goes mm -hmm. back to the whole see something, say something concept, right? We're trying to encourage yes. people to, to tell us things so that we can mitigate it beforehand, or at least it leads us to 
a, a potential investigative lead down the road. So, you know, we, we did a big, big, big education pretty frequently on that and, and had, would have lots of conversations. And we did notice escalations in suspicious activity reporting and things like that. And again, wh- one thing I always tried to do was if information led to a result that was critical to take back to my community groups and say, hey, listen, you guys reported this. We did something with this or it led to this. And they that always resonated with people. They're like, somebody's listening. They're trying. They they cared. I feel good about these results because it mattered to me. You have to give people that feedback. Yeah, that's that is important. And, this is, and when you were talking there, I got to think and it's funny because some people are more comfortable belly aching on next door app than they would be to actually <laughs> call the police a non-emergency line. But mm-hmm. <laughs> just people, people are funny, I guess. But you mentioned SEPTED and that's a topic that we really haven't covered much on the program. You think about it as like, you know, lighting's always a big one. I always mm-hmm. think of like a landscaping and, and certain aspects that way of trying to make sure that you don't give criminals a nice canvas to work with, basically. Do you have either a septet concept that you really like or maybe something that you feel is little known in terms of septet? So the biggest thing that I always shared with folks when we were doing these studies, really septet is, is all about target hardening, right? We With, with septet, we look at vulnerability points. So it kind of goes back to like what you were just saying about lighting, about shrubbery, you know, doing something as simple as planting hostile shrubbery near vulnerable points sends a message of, you know, keep out, makes it uncomfortable, right? Trimming bushes down to, you know, no higher than three feet, having proper fencing. It's things like when I was in crime prevention and probably one of the biggest SEPTED studies that I did was for an entire apartment complex. We had an apartment complex who really took the safety and security of the residents and the entire complex very seriously. And so when they had occurrences, they, they, made the call to, hey, what can someone help us with some target hardening measures and things like that? And I'm like, sure, okay, sounds good. So, you know, sometimes when you go out and you do those studies and you you write up this report, because SEPTED reports are, they were often book reports, right? Because you're going out, you're mm-hmm. taking photos and you're doing, you're looking at everything, the whole geography, the building, you know, all the structure, all of it. I remember doing some of those reports and I'm sure it just sat on some people's desk and, and collected dust, but this one apartment complex actually took my report and just overhauled the whole place. It ended up by the time they were done, ended up being a, a gated community. They can, had you know access controlled cameras installed, proper lighting. I mean, I was like, wow, you know, it was really, (laughs) it was nice to see someone really take, take that seriously. So, you know, and again, apartment complexes, they're easy, right? Because, you know, sometimes the doors aren't always the best or easy to kick in, different things like that. So it's just, we really went through and provided that viewpoint to say, hey, listen, you see how flimsy your doors are. We recommend things like steel doors or these types of locks or you know, just proper lighting when your residents come in here or, hey, this pathway, you got points where an offender could potentially hide. And, 
It's just there's room for a potential victim to come down here, so on and so forth. So that was yeah. that was really pleasing to have those results. And again, there's that apartment complex is in a great area and doing well from last I heard. So. No, that's a good story. When you first said apartment complex, my head went straight to like residential burglary. And I'm thinking about access points into the building and outside of the building. And is there a lobby and how does people come and go? And then, but then you mentioned about, you know, stuff outside the the apartment complex, more like the the parking lot area and where people could hide. And then that, that's a that's a whole other level of vulnerability for the residents is not so much of their apartment, but when they go to their vehicle. Absolutely. And that was one thing that we really honed in on because that apartment complex was surrounded by woods as well. And then you had a lot of trees within the complex. So it was a very natural environment, but mm-hmm. that provided a lot of coverage. And when you're walking on a pathway, there's tall shrubs hiding you and trees providing perfect coverage and poor lighting. The potential to become a victim is elevated, right? And so those were the things that we, again, we took pictures, I took pictures in the daytime, the nighttime, you know, just at different points. So it could just be pointed out in that report. Yeah. Did you by chance ever look at like the trend line for that apartment complex? Because I, you put, you, you mentioned that it was turned into a gated community. I can't imagine what the calls for service and crime was like before and then what it was like after, because obviously putting up a, a gate and having a gated community really reduces the number of crimes for the facility. Yes, we did. And that was the thing about it is there was the sharp decline because when you make that many changes, you decrease accessibility. So those without a need to access couldn't freely gain that access, right? So you reduce that foot traffic, thus reducing opportunity. And so I know I tracked it for a little while after that, and sometimes they were single digits with occurrences. The most activity that really ever occurred was the occasional domestic um, dispute. Um, But things like car burglaries, residential burglaries had a sharp decline. And truly kudos to that management for for taking ownership over the safety of that particular community. Yeah. So you had mentioned in the beginning when you talked about how you discovered law enforcement analysis that it was during this time as a crime prevention specialist that you started working with crime analysts and getting information from them. And that's how you developed a relationship with them. And I think you said you, you someone encouraged you to apply to the crime analyst position. So was it something that you just like never envisioned yourself as a crime analyst? It wasn't like I never really thought about it that way. Or was there a point in time when you were a crime specialist that, you know what, that's really where I want to go? So for me, it was more of, I can't say that I wasn't interested. I think I just didn't know enough about the field to to say that I was was interested or not just yet. I was interested in the things that they put out and the things that they worked on, but not having a full-on understanding, I was a little intimidated, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're seeing these complex analysis products being put out, you know, they work for the chief, everything is so, you know know how that goes. I think it was a lack of understanding. And when I sat down and, you know, I was having conversations about the stats that I needed for my community groups and things like that, 
what happened was one of the analysts said, hey, I, you know, if, if this is something you're going to be running all the time and you need these on a regular basis, let me just give you the program and teach you how to run some of these queries. <laughs> and let me turn you loose because I'm tired of doing this. I'm too busy. And I'm like, cool. Yeah. Sounds good to me. <laughs> nice. And so, yeah, she actually it got me a license for Crystal Report and taught me how to run queries, very simple queries against CAD and RMS. So I started, you know, le- again, learning some simplistic things about connections to the database on the back end, things like that, and building up very, very simple reports. But I was, uh, you know, self-sufficient now. And then she's free to go and do what she needs to do. She's not constantly running my stuff. And it worked out well. Because we did form such a good relationship, what happened is the city of Fable was actually embarking on a, a new ordinance, and it was called the Rental Action Management Program. It is honestly a very short-lived program because it kind of legislation ended up killing it. But the goal was to hold property owners accountable for their rental properties mm-hmm. that you know maybe weren't reaching the level of like nuisance abatement, but they, you know, we, we might have high high levels of crime and or different types of, what's the word I'm looking for? Environmental type issues, mm-hmm. code enforcement. That's the word I'm looking for. There you go. There we go. So it, the, the rental action management program uh, uh, would hold landlords accountable for uh, code enforcement as well as criminal activity, right? So, you, you, you know, you get the term like slumlord that you'll hear people say or just mm-hmm. non, non-involved, non-president owners of properties that just collect rent and allow whatever activity to take place. The city of Fayetteville became very involved in that initiative because it was almost a 50% rental rate. And we were seeing the tie to criminal activity to rental properties. And so what we wanted was, you know, folks to take ownership over their properties, conduct background checks, you know, have good leases in place, things like that. So given my work with the community, and understanding of the geography, different things like that. She said, hey, you know, this." they wanted crime analysts in there to, to do this program. And so she said, hey, we, you know, really like you to consider applying. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm, I'm cut out for this. And she's like, no, you are. And I'm like, okay. So I, I went in, spent some time with them, you know, learned a little bit of crime mapping, again, a little bit of uh, data pulls, different things like that. Just learned more about what their unit was actually doing. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to shoot my shot and throw my name in the hat and see what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how was the interview? And looking back now, you know, 10 years later, I did well. I presented well because there was a public speaking portion and I had been doing public speaking for three and a half years straight. So yeah. I, I could say I, I nailed the presentation part, but I, I did, I would say, okay on the analysis questions. Like I knew enough to be dangerous and to, to, to build a foundation on, but I would say now, hindsight being 2020, I, th- I think I did okay. They ended up hiring me, so. Yeah. Imagine if your initial interview was recorded and you were given the recording like when you retire. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I would be mortified to see some of my interview tapes, but at the same time, I'm sure they're really entertaining as well. No doubt. No (laughs) doubt. (laughs) So then you get assigned to this project of them going after the landlords. Is it a new penalty or is it a new law? What are they doing with this program? It's truly an ordinance. 
It ended up being a city ordinance. And what we were seeing is we, city of Fayetteville was not the only one embarking on on a journey like this. I think we were the only ones coming at it from both a crime and code enforcement standpoint, but we were seeing other municipalities go come at it from either or. But so what we were doing with that, again, is we were reviewing crime data. Crime would be given kind of a, a weighted value and you would have a ranking system. And so there was, you know, I think a threshold, I don't remember if it was top 10, top 15 properties, or if you reached a certain threshold, what it was was you would be issued a warning letter, um, have to go through a communication process with the city. And if it reached a secondary threshold or you failed to you know, communicate with us, you would you would be entered into the program and, and have to go through a process to be removed from the program. So there were fines involved if you failed to mitigate the issue or implement the the, the, the strategies outlined in your action plan, things like that. But it, it really, it didn't last very long. Like I said, I came on in July of 2012 and by probably not quite the end of 2013, we were being shifted elsewhere. So I spent the bulk of 2012 and 2013 providing information to assist with legislative battles around it. There were house bills introduced that said, hey, you know, this this is not right the way that's being approached. We need to, you know, come up with something better. At the end of the day, the, the juice ended up not, just not being worth the squeeze for everything that they were mm. asking for. So you, what you saw is, is is everybody just kind of killed their programs off and, and go a different route. And so my, my, myself and my counterpart that actually got hired at the same exact time for that program, we were shifted into actually more of an intelligence role by the end of 2013. We had gotten a new chief, and when he came in the door, he he had a vision of, of, cre- of making the analytical unit more robust. And so we were asked if we were okay with transitioning into a, a, a criminal intelligence role. Yeah. Hmm. I guess that's it. I understand that program could be difficult to implement. Again, when I was at Cincinnati Police Department, you know, we would have landlords and like, well, how would I even be able to find out what goes on in my apartment complex or my apartment? And we had to start supplying data, right? Because that wasn't readily available at the time. It is an interesting scenario that you put them in because they are landlords and they, you know, in some respects that their tenants are adults and they act up and then that's on them kind of thing. But certainly when you have scenarios where you have constant calls for service and, and, and constant blight there, that it is worth the city's effort to try to reduce and improve certain areas. Yeah, it, and it was, and the, I would say the catalyst for it is the the repeat occurrences at some of these properties. Kind of goes back to some like the eighty twenty theory, right? You know, eighty percent of your issues caused by maybe ten to twenty percent of of the population or of the group of offenders, right? And mm-hmm. so with rental properties, what we saw was there was a small portion that were consistently repeat offenders, if you will, for lack of a better term. That's what we saw. They, there was constant either calls for service related to shots fired. There were like search warrants being conducted, some with robberies and or homicides. 
it was constant. And so Mm -hmm. you go through so much to reach the level of actual nuisance abatement and property seizure and things like that. And again, depends on your state, right? But, you know, they wanted something that they they could implement to hold property owners accountable for the activity that was taking place. And that meant doing things like, again, um, background checks for your applicants, just having a a stronger lease that outlined the rules of the property. Because I can't tell Mm -hmm. you how many property owners we sat down and talked with. They didn't even have a lease. They didn't know who was in the property. They never did background checks. You know, the whole thing. They did not care unless, and if their money was coming in, it, it was Hey, whatever. Yeah. I don't care what they do. I don't <laughs> care what it looks like. Just whatever. <laughs> and oh, so God. the neighbors around them were suffering because of it. And they, you know, the community's like, listen, we're dealing with this all the time. We have no peace, and they won't do anything about it. We're calling them. They're not doing anything about it. So it was. I think it was a a, a good attempt. The heart was in the right place. I just think the logistics were not not there to be in our favor with that. Hi, I'm Joanne. I'm a crime analyst with the Saskatoon Police Service. The public service announcement that I have is for, especially for junior analysts, but also senior analysts, just be true to yourself and recognize that the police culture that you're in shouldn't necessarily shape who you are, but you have something to bring towards your service as a benefit as well. Hi, this is Dr. Carlina Orozco from the Tempe Police Department, Arizona State University. And my public service announcement is that correlation does not equal causation. If you find that certain things are occurring that may be contributing to a decrease or an increase in crime, for example, that gives an opportunity to investigate it a little bit further to see if possibly there are things contributing. But it does not mean that one thing caused the decline or the increase. It just means that there's an opportunity to explore it a little bit further. This is Jennifer Loper. When using the last of the TP, replace the roll the right way. As you mentioned, you get shipped off to Intel, which seems like a hard left turn for you at this point in your life. So what was that like going into Intel? So actually, it was a little bit easier of a transition than what you might think, simply because the program that that myself and my colleague were in with the the rental property items, the two of us were, you know, very, we're we're, we're very motivated individuals. We we get our stuff done and we're like, okay, on what else can we get our hands on? And so the volume of work at the time with that program, it wasn't really heavy, right? You do your stats, you do your reports. Okay, cool. So what else can we take on? So we had started working with our nuisance abatement officer on his cases. And when we did such a good job for him, that led us to being introduced to an officer who was being placed into a brand new position as a prostitution diversion officer. Mm. And what happened is she came in and said, hey, I was, I was, can you guys help me with some research, with some information collection, data compiling, things like that, and help me get this thing off the ground? And so we started dabbling in it even before our transition. And so when we get shipped off to the, the Intel world, it was like, okay, we're just kind of stepping up, right, it, into this whole process. So our chief, he, he wanted to, to call it the Crime Information Center because he had a vision of an intelligence 
as well as crime analysis and a blend of that. Because remember, the, the crime analysts that r- recruited me to come over were still in existence and focusing on a lot of tactical and strategic and administrative elements. But, you know, there was also the uh, now this new intelligence portion. So it was a lot of open source and intelligence. We focused a lot on making, you know, the connections between people and entities and cases. And we really got involved with human trafficking big time after that. All right. So this leads us to your analyst badge story. And for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is there's the career defining case or project that an analyst works So this deals with human trafficking. You just started, you went from working your way up with the community, working with property to now you get this case in dealing with human trafficking. Yeah. So I'll I'll tell you, my my introduction truly to the world of, of human trafficking, really it started with a spree of robberies that we were, we were having in the city. And, you know, as we were digging through this, we noticed a very strong correlation to prostitution style uh, set up robberies. And so we it worked pretty tirelessly doing research on the, the people involved. We looked at the victimology, you know, what, what was it that was going on? And then we discovered the prostitution nexus. Okay, we have a, a group and or individual prostitutes setting up Johns and and then their their male counterparts would come in and conduct the the robberies, pretty violent robberies at gunpoint. And that led us to discover a gang connection. And so that's kind of how that was really the the catalyst for introduction between that and working with our prostitution diversion officer. That's when we really started to dig into the entire world. So fast forward a few years, I've been working, you know, human trafficking cases for quite a while, you know, done a lot of case support, investigative research, open source intelligence, all of these things. And so part of that, you know, was was social media research. And, you know, as far as bad story goes, probably one of the most important cases that I ever worked on was a case that involved an individual, actually a female trafficker, who was recruiting juveniles via Facebook. And what the the way I came across it was there was a a scorned female who uh, our victim had spoken to her boyfriend <laughs> and it made her angry. So she outed her on social media and posted her. <laughs> yeah, she did. And I, was, and I, got, I came across, I said, mm, this looks like a, a child. And so I had to work backwards off of the information that I had. And I ended up discovering it's like she is, in fact, 15 years old. Wow. And I found her ads. And all of these things, so I, I put everything together, I compile it, and I turn it over to now that that prostitution diversion officer. She had now worked her way up to actual human trafficking detective, and so she ended up turn. I turned the case over to her with everything that I had, and we ended up working together on that one. She ended up doing search warrants on on the social media profile. That one juvenile and the search warrants that were done ended up leading to two additional juveniles being discovered as far as involved in the situation. And the long story short, we were able to do some intervention with a few of the juveniles, get them the services and get them out of the situation, things like that. The trafficker, we I remember 
worked because I was not on scene when they conducted the actual search warrant on her on her residence. But as they were walking through the property, I was navigating them to, to items to look for. So I was going through the, the, the back page ads at the time say, okay, you know, we're looking for these particular clothing items or whatever the case was. And we ended up finding the clothing that she was putting on these, these children to make them model and ad. And so I, I got to be a part of that because I needed to be behind my computer providing that information real time into the field. And they ended up finding the, the evidence that they needed. And it was it was a huge win. And so with that case, the trafficker ended up getting 10 years in federal time, wow. which is which is a really big deal. <laughs> you know, so I'll, I'll forever remember that because, again, you know, children they're so they're vulnerable they're naive they don't know and there is no such thing as a child prostitute right mm-hmm. I, I don't care what they said willingly they they would like to be involved no no so those were situations where vulnerable victims were, were coerced into helping an individual unfortunately feed a drug habit there's a lot of exploitation that took place there so again 10 years in federal prison honestly will we'll, I hope does her some good yeah, that's a lot. So what was that based off of? Were you able to prove several victims or overall impact? What drove that 10 years? So what really drove the 10 years was the totality. It was, you know, three juvenile victims. It was the recruitment in black and white through the social media messages. It was the, because we got our electronics, they downloaded, they did the, all the forensics on the electronics. We, we got the search warrant returns from Backpage and we were able to tie it back to her email address. Just all the linkage, it was, you know, there was no denying exactly what took place. So everything from the recruitment, the, the again, the tops that she put on one of the girls, she was also wearing in her own photos. And so the combination of the clothing, the messages, the, you know, everything from the forensics and the statement from the actual juveniles themselves about the, the manner in which they were recruited, how they were taken from Fayetteville to Raleigh, posted up in hotel rooms, forced to take pictures. And I think the impact of all of that, it was a no-brainer on the jury's end. Yeah. Hmm. Now, how prevalent is a female trafficker? Because I think most people, if you're doing a stereotype and you're thinking of a male trafficker, I think most people would would think of it that way. Yeah. And that's, listen, the historical on that, sure, that is, that's been a common theme with predominantly males being the traffickers. But what I noticed in working these cases for a number of years is there was it was always what we call the bottom, right? I'll keep the language clean on that and just kind of keep it <laughs> the bottom female, if you will. But bottom always meant top. So there was always a female that was alongside potentially running the show, depending on the circumstances and such. But they were in an interesting situation, right? Because if there was a male trafficker and they were a part of the, the what we call the bottom female, if she was a part of the forced fraud and coercion she is, you know, in the same boat as he is. But when we had we had not seen as prevalent just a lone female trafficking a trafficker rather often. And so that was not the first case I had ever come across with a just a female trafficker not working alongside a male trafficker. But they're they are a little bit more rare. I do think the the 
escalation in, in technology and the socialization of these different sites and making money and things like that. And then you can, you combine that with, you know, unfortunately with things like drug habits, you start to see a, an, an, an escalation in those types of things. So the numbers were pretty small and a little more rare back several years ago when I was really honing in on those cases. But I think we've seen the some growth in that over the last few years for sure. Yeah. To me, I would think a female may have more trust than a male. In terms of coercion, I don't know that. I'm just thinking the young victims, if they're not really expecting a female to lure them into trafficking, they might be more easily diverted to that than a male trafficker. And so, Jason, you honestly, you hit the nail on the head with that. And that's the, uh, the danger in it, right? There's a, <laughs> she understands maybe a, a ways to reach that female juvenile victim if, if that's what we're focusing on like right now, there's a way that, you know, she can to her a little differently. She comes across as a friend, as someone who's, girl, I got you, um, mm-hmm. supportive of you, that type of thing, versus what we see in male traffickers, where it's more of a, you, they take maybe a relationship approach or, you know, let me love you type of thing. The female traffickers, you come across as more of a friend and it's a little softer sometimes. And again, it, it definitely varies case to case. And, uh, you know, I've had cases where we've had both female and male victims in these situations, male and female traffickers uh, and things like that. But yeah, it is a different dynamic with a female trafficker from a coercion standpoint, because it is sometimes a, a softer approach. Yeah. Hmm. In terms of trafficking overall, what do you think there are maybe some misnomers that most of the public doesn't get or maybe it's just some misinformation out there? So one thing it really probably stands out the most. And again, the, the, the term human trafficking, the, the entire concept of human trafficking is really newer to society, if you will. What I'll say about that is there's a there was a perception when I first started working on this that somehow you know, a, a child, a juvenile could, could be considered a, a prostitute, right? And that mm-hmm. they were somehow not a victim. That's one thing that is a huge misconception is a, a child can never consent to, to prostitution or anything like that. It, it, they just can't. They're all, they are always a victim and for a number of reasons, right? The other things is You know, not every, what I've seen over the last few years really is human trafficking has become kind of a buzzword and it's thrown about kind of freely. The big thing to remember with human trafficking is you do have to have the elements of force, fraud, and or coercion. You you need those elements to really define it in that way. Because again, there are individuals out there that are willingly in this field for one reason or another, and not every case of prostitution is human trafficking. Not everybody is in is in this because they, you know, are being forced to. There are some that do make that choice for their own reasons. But the big thing to that to remember is there is that side where individuals are not in that life because they choose to be. And so, you know, I've definitely battled in my career of changing a law enforcement mindset before human trafficking, again, was the buzzword of the victim-centered approach, ensuring that we we take care of the individual um, so that if there were the elements of force, fraud, and coercion, we could get them to a point of getting resources 
getting out of the life and being willing to testify against their trafficker later on in the court system, which was extremely challenging. Hmm. All right. Well, just moving on then, you eventually become crime analyst supervisor there at Fayetteville. Was that transition weird? Maybe going from you have coworkers one day to then you have analysts that report to you the next? Of course it was. Absolutely. You know, your yeah. counterpart with, with, with folks one day and then, you know, we go from a sworn sergeant supervisor position to the department's now said, okay, we think we can benefit from a permanent civilian supervisor. And, you know, you toss your name in the hat and <laughs> see what happens. And then next thing you're taking over this boat, right? And so now your colleagues become your direct report. And that is a transition. It's a transition for, for everyone involved, right? Mm-hmm. So how many did you end up supervising in the beginning? So when I first took over supervisor, I had four crime analysts and one police officer. The, the unit that I had, the Crime Information Center, was a, we, we had analysts. And we had analysts as well as sworn staff because we were essentially like a real-time crime center. We had lots of public safety technology with surveillance cameras, you know, all kinds of different systems feeding in there. And so we had sworn camera operators who would monitor the radio, surveillance cameras, that type of thing. So we had a rotation of light duty officers that would come in one permanent officer to the to the center and then the four analysts. Hmm. Was it more odd supervising a sworn officer or supervising civilians? Oh, great great question. I think it the it was probably more odd supervising a sworn element, I guess you could say that, simply mm-hmm. because they don't know what to expect being supervised and reporting to a civilian, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone's trying to figure it out like you know, what, what do we, what do we do here? And so, you know, obviously supervising civilians, I, I just came from, you know, being exactly what the analysts were. So knowing how to navigate that world was, to me, was a little bit easier because I knew my counterpart, I knew what their skills were, their strengths, things like that. Whereas the officers, the big challenges there, again, you have light duty officers who who would rotate in and out. So get, as soon as you get to know oh, okay. somebody, you might have a new rotation, things like that. But there was one permanently assigned officer who was with me and we I did have a, a sworn major that I reported to as well. So it, we, we between myself and the major, we balanced their law enforcement needs together, but their day-to-day operational items, you know, I managed, managed all of that. It was just kind of a, a figuring out process, but I think it ended up being being very well in the end. All right. As you think back, how did you think you did as a first time supervisor? You know what? I, what I would say is I had a a lot to to learn for sure. Mm-hmm. But one thing that played to my advantage was the fact that I was born and raised in the city of Fayetteville, so I knew it inside and out, like the back of my hand. Mm-hmm. I knew our systems very well all those types of things. As I became the supervisor, the week I had, I actually had to hire two brand new analysts at the exact same time I was taking over. So I had two individuals that were working in the unit at the time and then two new ones that I was hiring. So I was in a process of transitioning to supervisor and then training two new folks at the same time. Um, So yeah. And so I knew there was a lot of things that I said, if I was given the opportunity 
to become the supervisor, I knew all the things that I griped about. And I knew all the things that I didn't like, and I vowed to change those things. I vowed to listen and, you know, absorb. And then if I'm going to gripe about it, then I need to put an action plan in place. <laughs> and that was one thing they knew about me is if I said I was going to do something, that I was going to be persistent in, in work to get that done. Yeah. Do you have a for instance there? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I told them I absolutely hated the layout of the unit. It looked like an AT&T call center. Truly. <laughs> <laughs> it was awful because we were all sitting in these little pod desks side by side with our back facing the door. So it was just not customer friendly. When somebody mm. walks in the door, your back's to them and then you're blocking the the screens things like that so I, was like, I hate this i'm going to completely you know remodel this place so um i did i ended up by the time all was said and done i, I remodeled the entire room and it, and it looked great the the center was not just the you know the analytical unit or where the cameras were it oftentimes turned into an operation center so special events critical incidents oh, yeah. um, all of that, everyone would funnel into our unit because, again, we had all the operational items. We had the information flowing, you know, to the field, all of that. We had drones, you know, all of that said, you know, I had uh, mobile cameras that we could deploy out, all those types of things. We we often turned into a, like an option or a command post, if you will. So it was, I needed to make the environment and we needed to configure it better for bringing people in to, to work. So putting in things like a, a big conference table and creating additional workstations and raising the back counter up so people could actually see the screens and things like that. So just that's kind of a poor instance. Uh, it was a massive overhaul, but it, it, it was it was ended up being really good and it, and it was needed. So you're coming in as a new supervisor and not only are you a new supervisor, you're hiring two new positions as well. So thinking back, how was that hiring process? How do you rate yourself? You know what? I think I think I, I got I got better over time. I learned a lot of different things. So one of the folks that I hired as I came on, she's actually still there in Fayetteville, still going strong. Yeah. And so she came in 2018, it's you know been four and a half years, and she's still so she's still there, going really strong. The other analyst that I hired at the time, she ended up being fantastic. I ended up plugging her into my my old spot, advice of gangs, human trafficking, all those things, and she was tenacious, just a <laughs> absolute fantastic researcher. She was just, just she could make people connections and. She put together an entire gang Rolodex and just really painted a picture. And she would network with other municipalities, making connections to not only Fayetteville cases, but Raleigh and Durham and Rocky Mount, all these types of things. And so her information ended up going all over the place. And so she was fantastic. And she ended up moving up north and taking a position with a, a, a department up north to be closer to family. But, you know, she was... She was absolutely a great hire. Yeah. You're allowed dropping names on this show. Who are these analysts? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the one that ended up leaving and heading up to Hartford was Leah Hewer. And Leah, again, I, I brag on her all the time because, again, she just had that tenacious spirit and she exhumed a lot of confidence. She'll forever get a good job reference from me because she, you know, her work was, was great. 
And then the other one that I hired is still in Fayetteville was Jennifer Donmez. Jennifer came to us from the NSA. She had a really good background with them, did a lot of signals intelligence, um, human intelligence, things like that. And Jennifer, the reason I, I really brag on Jennifer, just because she has a, a, a very good personality. She gets very excited about her work. She's invested in it. And so, again, she's four and a half years strong there in Fayetteville, and she, you know, that's where she's home to her is where she's from. And I'm really proud of both of them and their growth, for sure. All right. So, so then, as I mentioned in your intro, you move on from Fayetteville Police Department to Amtrak. So let's talk about that transition, the decision to leave the department that you've worked at since you were 19 years old and then to move on to Amtrak. Yeah, and that's the crazy part, right? I spent 16 years with the city of Fayetteville, and to be honest, I, I, I didn't picture myself really ever moving on. I pictured retirement mm-hmm. in my hometown, things like that, but kind of going back to an earlier point, I'm a person who enjoys and needs growth. And the only unfortunate side you know, to working for local government is the limited growth opportunities. And so, you know, being in the law enforcement analysis profession, I had I had peaked really with where I could go in the city. And I still had, you know, 14 years left to retirement. You know, I was only in my mid thirties. And so I'm like, you know, hey, it's just, it is what it is. So I actually was not looking. I had a recruiter reach out to me about a brand new opportunity that the Amtrak Police Department was embarking on. They had posted a new position and kind of like at Fayetteville, they were looking to bring in a civilian manager over the analytical section and wanted to talk to me. So I got I, I was reached out to on LinkedIn about the about the new position. Hmm, that's that is interesting. And so you take this this position, you've been there about a little over a year. And so what are you getting into in Amtrak? Because I think, as we talked about in the prep call, I think most people didn't even realize that there was a law enforcement entity with Amtrak. Yes. And so I will be very honest and say I did not either. You, know, The exposure that I had to the Amtrak Police Department was reports that would come out via our fusion center there in in North Carolina, the State Bureau of Investigation, Isaac, that was the fusion center there, and they would disseminate reports that were collected from other law enforcement agencies and such. And so when I was in Fayetteville, I would come across reports, some monthly narcotic interdiction reports from the Amtrak Police Department or their Rail Watch Weekly, which is a, you know, collection of open source items that it it gets put, published out, things like that. So that was really the only exposure that I had. And so I didn't realize the magnitude of the Amtrak Police Department. And so, you know, I get I get in here and realize, oh, wow, okay, cool. <laughs> this, this is a department that's in 46 states, all footprint, you know, it, it's a, a department de- dealing with all of the exact same things that Really, you know, I was kind of dealing with at, at at the local level and things like that, but just in a different way. And so it was. It's it has been a very interesting and unique transition because I walk in and I'm going, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea about this environment. The, I have no exposure to the railroad. I have not even ridden a train before. <laughs> this is completely foreign, completely new. 
you know, I, I was well established in Fayetteville. I knew all mm-hmm. the people, all the places, all the things. I walk in here and they're like, yes, welcome to the nationwide viewpoint and the <laughs> railroad. <laughs> <laughs> so then are you still managing a team? What kind of tasks do you, are you getting into? Yeah, absolutely. So when I first came in, I walked in the door and there was one criminal intelligence analyst on the team, a counterterrorism analyst. And then we had a vacancy for, at the time, it was a, a GIS analyst position. And so that's that's really the team that I, that I walked into. There are sworn detectives within the Office of Intelligence and Analysis, which is where I'm based out of. Um and so we have these the sworn detectives, and then we have these analyst positions. And when I walk in and start to learn my environment and learn, you know, about some of the items that were being worked on, and learn what the expectations were, things like that, you know, I started to really do some evaluation. I spent my first few months truly absorbing, evaluating, gathering feedback, gathering requirements, and really just trying to understand. The analyst that was that was there, you know, when I first came in, and again, she's still with me now, you know, I'm going to get a name drop with her, Bethany Tiernan. And man, she has truly helped me transition so nicely into this world because <laughs> I, I probably would have been very lost without her support. You know, she's she sat down. She's she's answered all of my questions over the last year. She's given me the historical perspective. She's told me the what, the why, the when, the who, and things like that. She presented me with her challenges, and we've just had some very raw and honest discussions about what going forward looks like. And so, over the past year, I have ended up building out this team. One thing about working for the Amtrak Police Department is I've had a lot of leadership support and. That is sometimes, you know, that's hard to come by, you know, depending on the the department, the situation, whatever the the case is, Amtrak, it really has invested heavily in my unit. And it's been great because I walked in the door, I was able to fill the vacancy. I converted the, the solo GIS analyst position to a lead data analyst for both our safety and security realms. I was able to bring on a principal data scientist for some pretty high level complex projects that we work on and I was able to hire four regionally embedded analysts and they are embedded in four major cities throughout the nation. So I've got an analyst in Oakland, California, who supports our Western division. I've got an analyst in Chicago who supports our central division. I've got an analyst in New York supporting our New York and New England divisions and an analyst in Philadelphia supporting our entire mid-Atlantic region. So that's everything from you know, the state of Pennsylvania all the way down to Florida. So the analysts in the field have pretty big AORs. And again, we do have three interns on the team, data science intern, counterterrorism intern, crime analyst intern, and actually just added a GIS intern. So we just added a fourth, actually. And so we're pretty, we're a pretty large, robust team. So I've been busy over the last year, Jason. Well, I, and I actually lost count. How many people is this? <laughs> I think we're upward to like 13 now. Wow. Time all was said and done. Because I, I, you know, the big thing that I went in and said, listen, we are a nationwide department. We're in 46 states, which means we're dealing with 46 states of general statutes and laws that are just sometimes completely you know, different and things like that. You know, we need to covering the nation from headquarters in D.C. and and being a good resource and support element to the field 
this is not a sustainable model. And so this is what I'm saying when I had, you know, leadership support and buy-in, I was able to do a, a, a six-month review and presentation to our leadership. And I imagine my surprise and shock when they said, okay, we hear you, we're all in. And I'm like, what? <laughs> this is great. And so the things that we've been able to accomplish over the last year has been astounding. We actually have a, a, a very interesting dynamic because not only do we work in the police department realm, but we also work very closely with our, our corporate security partners. So corporate security falls under the umbrella of the police department. And then we also work with our safety personnel. So we look at safety corporate security and police data under the umbrella of a corporation, and which means we, we get our hands on a lot of great information. My team does everything from your typical tactical, administrative, strategic analysis. Again, we do intelligence, national security items. We, do, we build dashboards. We do congressional reporting um, because we're kind of a, a quasi-federal <laughs> entity, if you will. So, you know, we get inquiries from Congress, things like that, and we have to provide those statistics in those summaries, you know, investigative research, case support, everything that you would experience in your local department, we're, we're doing the exact same things. We're doing networking with our local municipalities, you know, trying to build those relationships so that as we go out and try to problem solve, we're looking at the entire picture and we're, we're, we have information flow. Putting out bulletin, one of my analysts just in Philadelphia just put out a bulletin today on some tagging that's going on on our electrical poles, our catenary wires. The Northeast Corridor trains run off electrical wire. And I, I try to reserve your shock when I say that people try to steal copper wire. Yes. <laughs> They, they try to steal copper wire. And so we put out bulletins to our partners. Hey, be on the lookout for this and this type of information and things like that. Hmm. So what is Amtrak's police department's jurisdiction? How is that defined? Oh, so, I mean, again, being a nationwide department, what, what happens is officers end up getting certified in the state in which they work. And so, you know, they, it just depends on the laws of that state and what certifications they have to go through. But we, we tend to follow the rules of, again, those individual states and such. So what we'll have is officers, you know, if they work in New York, they're certified in the state of New York, you know, California, so on and so forth. So we have the same jurisdictional, you know, boundaries like anyone would. We obviously along our property, so the, the stations that we patrol along the right of way of the tracks, our different facilities and things like that. You know, it, it also depends on if we have MOUs in place with different, you know, partners and such. And so, yeah, it's interesting seeing that dynamic in play because, you know, it's so different all over the country. Hmm. You mentioned on the on the prep call, you know, Amtrak as a resource for other analysts in the police departments. Yes. When should an analyst from a local jurisdiction contact you all there at Amtrak? Ooh, yeah, great question, Jason. So the the one thing that I would definitely share is we sit on a, a goldmine of information and we're happy to conduct research about anything that, that happens, you know, on our system, on our in our facilities, whatever the case is. So I'll give you kind of an example. We, we, we've been reached out to regarding missing persons, suspected trafficking victims, runaway juveniles, 
uh, people like that and people will will check with say they'll say hey you know we we think that they frequent maybe your facilities and or they they take Amtrak trains whatever the case is so we are able to pull in you know people's manifests look at their travel history that type of information. We also are able to support items like looking at ridership. So one thing that we look at is if there's going to be a major event, things like that, we're trying to understand maybe the impact of the volume. We will look at our, our bookings, our ridership. So are we seeing higher levels of ridership coming into these locations that we maybe wouldn't normally expect? So it kind of just gives us an idea it, you know, from an operational planning standpoint of what people's maybe travel patterns look like and or what the influx may look like. So as you can imagine, we look at a, a multitude of things, but again, we have a lot of the same resources that, that other law enforcement agencies do. So again, we do we definitely support investigative research and like that. But the big thing is, you know, we, we definitely want to be an asset and a resource for those that maybe have individuals they're looking for and let us conduct those searches to see if there's anything from our system that we can provide. So let's finish up just maybe more of a general discussion on law enforcement and leadership. And I think you have an interesting perspective there as you've worked your way up to where you are now. I mean, what are some of the things maybe you would like to see law enforcement analysis do to improve in the future in terms of leadership? Oh, wow. So with that, Jason, I think there, you know, we could go a couple different ways with that. As as a leader, one thing that I really strive for is really seeking to understand the situation before making a judgment call or jumping to conclusions. And so, you know, from a leadership perspective, it's critical, number one, to to listen, listen to your folks, listen mm-hmm. to what their concerns are, listen to what their interests are, listen to their interests in their own personal growth. I can't stress that enough that, you know, investing in people's personal development and growth how critical that is to recruitment and retention efforts. I always, when I interview folks, you know, I always ask about their future growth potential, what they're looking for there, you know, what are, what is a five-year plan, you know, that type of thing. Because I want to know that I can support that vision. Can I help build you up to that, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's that's one thing I would say is from a leadership perspective, invest in people, you know, no matter what. Don't be afraid they're going to get so great that they're going to they're going to leave you because <laughs> the goal there is turn around and treat them so well that they don't want to go anywhere else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think there's just limitation. You had mentioned there that you plateaued at the police department. Right. There really wasn't anywhere else to go. And I. <laughs> almost don't see any significant development in terms of law enforcement analysis and leadership until the police departments have more civilians in executive roles. And there's more of a civilianization of the police department to where you get to the point where you just have people that have worked as a civilian analyst have worked their way up all the way to being on the chief's staff. Until that happens, you're going to have this point where people plateau 
and then there's nowhere else to go but out if they want to improve. I would agree with with that assessment, Jason. I, you know, the big thing for me was very difficult for me to make the decision truthfully to leave the department I had invested so much in. And here's the other reason why is because, you know, in Fayetteville, I, I did have a chief that invested in my personal development and she, you know, provided me you know, all kinds of professional development opportunities so that she could see me grow. The unfortunate side, I knew there were there were going to be budget limitations to additional elevation in my career there. And that's beyond you know, any control that that department would have had. However, I agree with what you're saying with that because it, departments need that that differing viewpoint. Departments tend to be very top-heavy from a sworn element, but you don't always see the mix of, of civilians on that executive level. I think it, it, it would be a wonderful opportunity to diversify the perspective at the executive level if departments would, would embrace that. And you see it a little bit in, in the bigger department, you know, obviously where there's a lot more money and such, but from a local government perspective, like a smaller scale department, yeah, you, you definitely run into those challenges. And so, you know, you get somebody like me who says, okay, hey, I am worth my weight in gold, right? Keep yeah. Word to the wise, know your worth. I'm worth my weight in gold and I want to, I've got so much more in me that I want to do and I want to grow and I want to, I want to drive this profession forward as much as I can. What does that look like? Right. And so then you, you do, you have to make hard decisions. Our last segment to the show is words to the world. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Rachel, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? So, Jason, my my words to the world is something I learned a very long time ago. And really, it was the thing that's always stuck with me throughout my career and has done me very well is, you know, so long time ago that I needed to ensure that I was listening with the intent to understand rather than the intent to reply. And I that has resonated with me and carried me very far in my career because when people you're interacting with feel as though you are truly listening to them to understand what they're saying, what their problem is, what their interests are. You, instead of listening with just the intent to get your next word in, you, you end up forming a better bond and relationship and rapport with individuals. So if I could give any word to the world outside is is really sit down and, and listen with that intent to understand, even if the, the viewpoint is different from yours. You'll be amazed at what you learn. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you. You've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Rachel. Thank you so much, and you be safe. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.